This is a sermon preached in the pulpit of Eden Grove Presbyterian Church, Bowen Hinch, Northern Ireland. A place where we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. That the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. But this morning, boys and girls, mums and dads, we're now going to turn to the Word of God. And today we're finishing our series in the book of 2 Corinthians. It has been our autumn series and we have reached chapter 13. And that's what we're going to read together this morning. So grab your Bible, open it up, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll read the whole chapter. And this is the Word of God. This is the third time that I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in the use of my authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you all. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And we thank God for his word. There isn't any part of any Bible book that is irrelevant. Often when it comes to Paul's letters, we skip through the first couple of verses, the greeting. Greet this one, greet that one. I'm saying hello from this place or that place. We skip over it to get to the good stuff. And the temptation is when it comes to the final chapter, we skip over that too. It's just a bit of a conclusion, isn't it? And it's certainly not as good as the stuff in the middle because that's where we want to be. But my brothers and sisters, every part of scripture is God-breathed and it is profitable for every one of us to read and to study and learn from. And the final chapter in 2 Corinthians is certainly no exception. 
Paul is finishing up his letter. It has been a difficult letter at times. He's had to spend much time in defending himself from the falsehoods of the false apostles. But every part of this final chapter is worth our attention. Paul writes as verse 1 begins that this is the third time I am coming to you. Paul expects to visit these Corinthians once again and his heart as this letter comes to a close is not that he would have to come and go to war. We've said throughout this sermon series that Paul's desire is not to constantly be fighting against those who oppose him. He would much rather come and spend time preaching and teaching and building up the church of Jesus Christ. He says so much in verse 10. He says that he has been given authority from the Lord for building up and not for tearing down. But that is not to say that Paul won't come again to the Corinthians and bring a challenge to those who are continuing to divide the church of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 2, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now, while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spur them. Paul is clear here that the barb that has been thrown at him time and time again, that he is all talk when he is away, but very quiet when he is there in person, well, it is simply not true. Paul has warned those sinning in Corinth before and all the others, and he warns them again, now absent, so in person or absent, it is the same. Paul has promised that if he comes again and things have not changed, then he will not spare the troublemakers. Paul loves the church of Jesus Christ, and because he loves the church of Jesus Christ, he is not afraid to exercise church discipline. He loves the church. And therefore, if he has to, when he comes, he will not spare those who are causing sin and turmoil in the local fellowship. Paul writes in verse 3, Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, since you have wondered and questioned and doubt, am I the real deal? I may come again. And I want you to realize that Christ is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. The very fact that this Corinthian church existed was sure far testimony to the fact that Christ was at work. Corinth was an incredibly pagan city and yet in that city the gospel had been preached and many had been called out of darkness into the light of Christ. They had been saved. The very fact that this was the case showed that the Lord had been working powerfully among them. So the Lord was not weak in Corinth and certainly Paul was not weak in Corinth. And if the challenge had to be made to those causing trouble and turmoil, then that challenge would certainly come. Christ, verse 4, may have been crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. It was by the power of God that Jesus stood again on this earth. It was by the power of God that he did not see corruption in the grave. Jesus today lives by the power of God and is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his bride, the church. He may have been crucified in weakness, but still is alive and well by the power of God. And so Paul is able to say, for we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you we will live with him by the power of God. Paul has made much about the weakness of his ministry. 
And he spent the past couple of chapters outlining ways in which he could boast, although he certainly didn't want to boast. He felt that it was unnecessary, that it was foolishness, but he was addressing the false apostles on their own terms, by their own methods. And so Paul boasted and boasted truthfully. He was able to boast about the sufferings that he underwent. Last time out we heard about the thorn in his flesh that he pleaded with the Lord three times to remove but that prayer was not answered. And Paul last time out was able to say as well that he had been called up to heaven either in body or spirit. He did not know but he was called to heaven. He saw the Lord and he heard things that he was not allowed to speak. Certainly Paul was able to boast if necessary. But Paul boasted and wanted to boast about his weakness. Paul knew that perhaps in earthly terms, he wasn't a wonderful speaker. He understood that perhaps in earthly terms, he didn't look like very much. But Paul was an apostle and he had come and preached the gospel in Corinth and had underlined it and underscored it by the signs of a true apostle, by Gifts and wonders and signs and miracles, Paul underlined the truthfulness of his position and by extension his message. So Paul, although being weak, was strong in Christ. And if he had to return, then he would deal with the troublemakers by the power of God. Paul is clear as this chapter is coming to a close that the church of Jesus Christ is not a body that is to be trifled with. He underlines once again that he will not spare those who seek to destroy the church of Christ. My friends, may we hear this message. In this day and age, I fear that the church is held in such low esteem that we trample all over it and we don't barely give it a thought. We hold the church in such low esteem that we don't really care how we behave in it. If we have to shout and argue, then we'll do that. If we have to slander and gossip, then we'll do that. If we have to cause cliques around us and and start many wars where we will be declared the winner and the king of the castle, then we will certainly do that. And yet, if we ever went and joined an outside organization, let's say we joined the Masons or the Orange Order or some of these other unnecessary groups, Let's say we joined the Women's Institute. Let's say we joined our local gardening club. Any of these bodies, we would certainly not act the way sometimes we do in the local church. Why is that? Why is it that we give more attention to the rugby club or the golf club or whatever club we're part of? Why is it that we behave impeccably at our local gym? And yet when it comes to our local fellowship, It has almost become irrelevant in our lives. We might go to it, but if we're doing something else more important, then probably we'll stay at home. We might go and listen and and strive to be taught, but do you know what? Hand on heart, we don't really see it. Is that necessary? We treat the local church sometimes as if she is something to be used and abused and tossed out like a banana skin once you've had the good stuff inside. My friends, it was never meant to be this way. As this letter comes to a close, and indeed as this year comes to a close, it has been an extraordinary year. 
It has been a year that we have been divorced from the public gathering of the local church. I haven't done the maths. I haven't counted up. But you and I have not met physically, face to face, as much this year as we usually have. And I hope as you think on that, you see it as a tragedy. You see, we are not to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. The apostle will urge us that in the book of Hebrews. And when we gather, we are to attend to the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means which God himself has given to us to build us up in the faith. And when we meet, we are certainly to strive for unity in the body of the local church. My friends, today, if you have ever been someone who has sought to cause division in the local church, then may you repent. May you be someone who is quick to fall to your knees if you have caused cliques around you in the local church. May you be someone who is quick to repent if you have treated the local church as if it's like going to Littles or going to Iceland and Balnehinch. It's a, an irrelevant place, an irrelevant decision. May you repent of such things. If you have broken away from your local church and treated it with gossip and slander on your way out the door, then may you repent. May you repent if you've shaken an angry fist at your local church and said, I will never go back to such a place. And may you repent if you have been involved in the blight of the local church, which is anonymous letter writing and anonymous poster planting and all the stuff that goes on. And, and even in this district, may you repent of trying to destroy the hearts of God's people. You see, the local church is Christ's bride. The local church is the means by which the Lord has ordained to, to bring the gospel to a fallen world. That is the local church. I wrote a devotion about this a couple of weeks ago. And what I wrote in that, so I say to you, we certainly wouldn't go into a lion's den and trample on the lion cubs. And yet, when it comes to the local church, we treat her with such contempt we come in and we stamp our feet and we trample where we want and we don't give it a second thought. My brothers and sisters, I pray that this year of absence will cause our hearts to grow fond again of the local church. Because I can assure you, the Lord loves the local church. The church is the bride for whom Christ died. And if the Lord Jesus Christ stands today as we believe he does at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for his church, then there in that wonderful vision we realise how much Christ loves his bride. And so please understand that if you are someone who seeks to divide and cause trouble in the local church wherever she may be, then you are seeking to attack the bride of Christ. He is the lion like lamb and he is fierce against his enemies. And my friends, if you seek an enemy in Christ, then you must be the greatest fool on this earth. Paul does not want to come to the local church to fight and argue, but if it has to be, if he has to exercise discipline, then Paul is absolutely clear he will do it. See, the local church belongs to Jesus. 
and the local churches to be a place of truth. Not a place of gossip and slander. Paul had faced enough of that in Corinth. It isn't to be a place where challenges go unanswered and unworked out. Paul has had that too. He says in verse 1 that every charge in the local church must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I would suspect that none of us are really very good at that. We hear something and perhaps we think it comes from a trusted source and therefore we believe it 100%. It comes from a friend, comes from an old colleague, it comes from a person that we went to school with. We hear the rumour. We hear something mapped out for us and we believe it absolutely. Paul says here that that is not our standard and should not be our standard. And we should look for a higher standard that every charge should be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you can imagine the false apostles bringing charges against Paul. Could they support it with witnesses? Could they say this person, that person, the other person saw this and heard this? The biblical standard for truth in the local church is that every charge is established by two or three witnesses. This shouldn't surprise us in any way as we have walked through 2 Corinthians. We have seen that Paul brings the the opponent's arguments into light and he shows them to be false. And all the way through the scriptures, this is the biblical standard that in the church of Jesus Christ, Christians should aim for truth in all that they do. Not gossip, not slander, not any of that stuff which often marks out the local church, but truth. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And so any charge that you believe, any charge that you want to bring about a brother or sister in Christ, about your minister, about an elder, about uh, the guy down the street, you must be able to establish it with the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus has said this in Matthew 18 and verse 16. And he urges us to seek reconciliation with a brother and to to take one or two others along with us so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And when it comes to the leaders in the church, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 and 18, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And later in Revelation 11 and verse 3, the church is described as exercising the ministry of two witnesses. Why? Because it is a truthful ministry. It is a truthful message. And we have seen Paul sending one and two and three to Corinth to gather up the collection. And why? So that everything is done honorably in the sight of the Lord and in the sight of this world. We in the local church should strive not to believe lies and slander. In the local church, we should be men and women who have a higher standard, a higher bar for the stuff that we are prepared to to make decisions around and to build our houses upon. We must demand the truth to ring out in the local church. And every charge, says Paul, every charge against me as an apostle, Or against my opponents, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three. And Paul is returning 
And if he has to deal with his enemies, then he will certainly do it. And you can be certainly sure that he will be able to establish any charge against them with this level of evidence. My friends, the year is coming to a close. And soon, by the grace of God, when 2021 comes and maybe a vaccine gets ruled out, we return to normal. I've said this before and undoubtedly I will say it again. I pray that we will not return to normal. Because I am sad to say that often in the church of Jesus Christ, gossip is something that we allow to run rampant. We share in it. We pass it on. We spread it. We, we whisper it. We text it. We WhatsApp it. We, we stay behind in our Bible study groups to have a wee quiet chat with, with that person we know that will not challenge us. As we're walking to the car park to jump into our car, we, we have a gentle little whisper and a gentle little chat with that person who we know will not challenge us. But as Christians, as men and women, as, as members of the local church, as men and women for whom Christ died, as we look at Christmas once again, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, God taking on flesh, the word incarnate, the truth. We remember that he is the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not been able to overcome it. And therefore we pray that the light of truth is what resonates and rings in our local church. My friends, gossip can no longer be seen as a respectable sin. If the organist ran away with the minister, we wouldn't tolerate such a thing. If the treasurer stole all the money, we, we wouldn't tolerate such a thing. If two men got into a fist fight in the car park of the church, I hope we wouldn't tolerate such a thing. But why then do we tolerate the whispers and aisle four of B&M. Why do we tolerate the texts in our WhatsApp groups? Why do we tolerate falsehood that is spread, not so that we can get to the truth, not so the local church can be built, but so that things will be torn down? Why do we tolerate it? Friends, it was for sins like this, like gossip, that Christ came so that evildoers of all kinds might look unto him and repent and be saved. We pray today that the local church in the coming days and months as things return to normal will be radically transformed by the word of God and the working of the Holy Spirit. Paul is coming to speak the truth. He is coming if necessary to tackle and to challenge those who have opposed him he is coming to tell the truth and may it always be a mark of the local church that truth rings out but Paul is coming as well and wants these Corinthians to be certain in their local fellowship about that which they believe he says in verse 5 examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith Test yourselves, or do you not realise this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. What is Paul talking about? Well, again, these Corinthians in this local fellowship in Corinth, 
these men and women need to come to a place where they understand what side of the fence they belong. Paul has already said that they have tolerated the false preachers. These false apostles, these so-called super apostles who are preaching, says Paul, a different Christ, a different spirit and a different gospel. Paul says here, Corinthians, examine yourselves. Are you in the faith? Test yourselves. Do you believe the gospel that we have preached? Have you received Christ by repentance and faith? Or are you adding to the gospel? Are you subtracting from the gospel? Are you believing the false gospel and the false spirit and the false Christ that the super apostles have preached to you? Examine yourselves and test yourselves. Paul says, I hope you will find in verse 6, that we have not failed the test. And just as Paul and those with him stand on the truth of the gospel, so he hopes that the Corinthians will share that truth with him. Paul says in verse 7, But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Paul wants reform in this local church. He wants these Corinthians to take seriously the sin that was in their midst. He wants them to exercise discipline against those who are preaching falsely. And ultimately, he wants to see restoration. Verse 9. We are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. And all the way through this letter, we have seen that again and again and again. Paul is a man of grace and he wants to see those who oppose him brought back into the fellowship, believing the truth once more about the Lord Jesus. He says in verse 8, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And this is front and centre of any reformation that takes place, any revival that takes place, any restoration that takes place in the local church, there must be emphasis placed on the truth. The word of God must light up the darkness, the darkness of our fellowships and the grip of Satan and the darkness of those dark reaches of our hearts where we haven't swept them out with the gospel brush in a long time. Paul wants the truth to ring in Corinth. And as that truth rings for these Corinthians to be certain about it, to strive for unity in the body and, and restoration and truth and to stand against gossip and to support every charge against the evidence of two and three witnesses. Paul longs for this church to be certain about the gospel and therefore to be built up. If he comes in verse 10, he says, It is for this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me. Paul is filled with authority. He is an apostle, a witness of the resurrection. He met the Lord Jesus Christ. And the apostles were these men who were charged by Christ to go and to take the gospel. He meets them. He sends them out. He equips them with miraculous gifts, the signs of a true apostle. And he sends them to preach the gospel and to establish the church. 
Paul has this authority, true authority, not the authority of his opponents, the, the false apostles, but the authority of the Lord that has been given to him, not for tearing down, says Paul at the end of verse 10, but for building up, for building up. There's his desire. There's what he wants. In this divided wee place called Corinth, he wants this fellowship to be built. Friends, what a New Year's resolution this chapter would be for our local churches. What do we want in 2021? Yes, we can say quickly, oh, we, we long for the girls' brigade and the boys' brigade to be back. We long for things to get back to normal, for there to be a, a Sunday school, our choir to get up to the front again. We long to be able to have our cup of coffee afterwards and, and even beforehand. We want to get back to normal. But what if normal is not where the Lord wants to take us? What if this has been a time of refreshing, a time of challenge, a time where we have been distant from things that we have taken for granted? What if this has been a time where the Lord is stoking up in us a love again of the local church where every week we meet with Jesus and the precious means that he gives us to build us up? What if instead of normal, we strive for truth in our local fellowship. What if instead of normal, we, we strive for certainty about the things of God, that we will return to our fellowships and we will want to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to, to the teaching of the prophets. We want to go Genesis to Revelation and meet Jesus in every page so that we may stand on the rock that is Christ and his word, the truth. What if we come back and strive to be built up and not torn down? That is what I hope for. Certainly not back to business as usual because I suspect for most of us business as usual wasn't really that good. We put on a good show. We turned up every week in our Sunday best. But, but what if this is a chance in a lifetime? to seek true reformation and restoration of the local church for whom Christ died. See, another way is outlined for us as this book ends. Paul has urged that we stand for truth. He has warned that he will exercise discipline if necessary. He wants these Corinthians to examine themselves so they will be sure and certain that they are on the right side. But finally, brothers, he says in verse 11, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. What an absolutely astounding change this would bring to our fellowships if we took it seriously. That we would rejoice daily in the Lord, that we would aim to be restored with those who have sinned against us, that we would walk alongside each other with tears running down our faces as we comfort one another. What if we were striving for agreement in the truth with one another? What if we were to live in peace with one another? And what if the God of love and peace was with us and we understood his presence every day and we rejoiced in it? 
that's not back to normal. I suspect for many churches in this divided land of ours, that would be radical. We are to greet one another with a holy kiss, says Paul. That's something we can't do at the minute and something we wouldn't do in a normal circumstance. And, and whether we ever do get to a place where we greet one another with a holy kiss, I don't know. I'm not a hugger and I'm not definitely not a kisser. But what Paul speaks of here is fellowship. Fellowship. Not the rushing in and rushing out. Not the only talking to your mates and nobody else. Not the, I'm not going to speak to him because I don't really like him and I'm going to send him this unspoken mental message that I'm not happy and I'm cross about stuff. None of that. But real fellowship. For we know that in that wee place that we go to Sunday by Sunday, whether it's Eden Grove or the host of other fellowships in this town, or wherever you're listening to this or watching this, you're the wee hall that you attend worship in, you and the 40-odd others, or that big church you go to with the 400 people there every week, you know that when you gather, it is a special place, a significant place, for it is the gathering of the local church, the body of Christ on this earth. He is in the midst of us. And that makes that perfectly shaped small, medium, or large church that you attend, the most significant place in your week. Imagine that for 2021. All the saints greet you, says Paul. This isn't an exercise of one church. We are part of the church, Catholic. All the saints greet you. All the saints in Belfast, in Balnehinch, in Saintfield, across Gar, Cumber, down Patrick, our glass, all over our presbytery and beyond, all the saints greet you. For Christ did not die for a select few in one wee corner, but for a multitude throughout this world. All the saints greet you. And my brothers and sisters, may we realise the size and the scale of this vision. May we long for days where our fellowships resemble the word of God. And as we close today, and as this book ends, and as this year soon comes to an end, so we end with a benediction in verse 14. Benediction comes from the words bene and diction, a good word. And at the end of every service, I'll stick my arms up in the air and I will pronounce the benediction. I will bless the people of God. I will say a good word. And we will go from our fellowships into this world. And so as this service ends, as this passage ends, as this book ends, as this year ends, and as Christmas approaches Joy mingled and mixed for many of us with great sadness. My friends, may you today, may I today, may our churches today and in the years to come know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.